I'm disappointed in everybody but Daryl. He brought his family. So. Okay. Um, if you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with our call to worship. This is uh, taken from Psalm 115. And in this psalm, it talks about the difference between the worship of God and the people of the nations that had turned to idols. And it sort of describes the difference between worshiping the true God, who is all-powerful, and these idols that the people worship that have no real power. And at the end, it sort of ends with this refrain to trust and fear the Lord. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me and read the non-bold section. This is our call to worship. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and their shield. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 31, we'll sing All Creatures.
So we come to the part of the service that we call confession of sin. Now, if you were raised in the tradition I was, you uh, probably don't like the idea of confession of sin in public. I mean, who wants to say that out in front of everybody? But what we do is we use the scripture. We use the word to, to highlight a truth that is in us and understanding that this is how we were, how we are without Christ. And the first one is in Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Is this right here? Hang on a second. Okay. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's pretty, uh, that's pretty wicked when you think about it. I did a little word study on all because it says all do this. And in the Greek it means all. <laughs> every single one of us. No exceptions. Every single one of us. And so that's uh, it's pretty pertinent there for everybody, I think. So in this understanding of of our need of Christ, understanding that all of us fall under this, this uh, really this, this desire for self rather than God himself. We come to our, a prayer of confession. And so this we want to do corporately. We want to do this for all of us together. Where we can pray in one another, lifting each other up as well, understanding that we all need to confess these prayers. So if you would join with me in this prayer of confession as I, as I pray here in, the, in this service. Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, you have given us life and breath and everything, and yet we, because of our sin, have not sought after you. We have turned to our own devices. We confess our sins, running to Jesus Christ for refuge the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by your Holy Spirit, 
Would you conform us to the image of your Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you please remain standing and turn to hymn number 224. We will sing before the throne.
So we started off with uh, an understanding of where we've come from. How we've come out of sin. But God doesn't leave us in our sin. He, he gives us grace and he gives us mercy. And in these next scriptures, he gives us hope that we have in uh, 2 Ephesians, or in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. And you were dead, were dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which we, He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Would you all pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for your spirit that brings that truth alive in our hearts and our minds. Renew us, refresh us with your word today, Lord. And Lord, we want to lift up uh, Exodus Presbyterian Church in, in Springfield this morning as today is their uh, first day of being an official church where they're gathering together like we are, proclaiming your name, proclaiming your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would richly bless them Populate their body, Lord. Bring them people who are hunger for, hungry for your word and hungry for your truth. Be with us today and Pastor Kendall as he brings your word, Lord. Ready our hearts as we receive your word and your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> So then we come to what is called one of the confessions of our faith, the 1689 Confession. And you'll notice that this confession is not directly from the Word, much like our confession of sin was, much like our assurance of pardon was. But what the confession is, what all the confessions are, they're like, they're like guardrails. And... Though they aren't from the Word, they're not inspired from God, they're guardrails that keeps us in line with the Word because it points directly to the Word. So it's not something that's outside of God's truth. It's something that really brings it down to our level. Well, I'm speaking to me personally anyway. <laughs> My level is way down here. So that's what the Confession of Faith is all about. In this 1689, it speaks of religious worship and the Sabbath day. If you would all join me as we read this. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. 
is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worship in the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated this morning. morning again. It's good to be with you all. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4, uh, we'll be backtracking slightly. I almost was able to uh, keep going in the Gospel of John last week. For those of you that were here, we talked about the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And we talked about how we see this divine initiative of Jesus that he seeks after this woman who's not only a woman who at that time was not supposed to be talked to in public, let alone about things like theology. We see Jesus reach out to her. We also see that she's a Samaritan woman, one of the most hated people of the Jews. And we see Jesus reach out to her. And she's also, we find, a sinner that she's had five husbands, and the one that she's now with is not her husband. And yet we see Jesus reach out to her. And they have this discourse, they have this back and forth, and we talked about that last week. If you want to go look on our website, you can see the sermon from last week. But we saw this great contrast between the man Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the religious leader of the time, who Jesus had just gotten done speaking with, and he was this religious elite. He was the one that followed the law, had a lot of the Bible memorized, and yet he didn't understand. <laughs> he didn't see that he had the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ right in front of him. And that's contrasted with this woman who, in every way, should not have been spoken to by Jesus, right? She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she's a known sinner, an immoral person. And yet we see her response, that she responds to Jesus. He reveals himself. He says, I am the Christ. I am the one that's come to save sinners like you, to bring you living water, to satisfy your longings and your thirst. That this woman had spent her whole life trying to find her satisfaction in everything but God. And Christ comes and he says, I have living water. That everybody that drinks from this well that you're standing at will be thirsty again. They'll have desire again. And he's communicating these spiritual truths using physical pictures like water and the well. And he says, but the water that I give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That I'm the one that's truly going to satisfy. You're searching after these other things. You're really searching after sin. It's not going to satisfy you. Only I can satisfy so we talked about that last week, just a brief summary there. And in this discussion, the woman is trying to change this conversation, right? She doesn't want to talk about um, this 
this water in this well. She doesn't want to talk about her sin. She wants to keep changing the subject. And we saw that several times last week. And in part of that discussion, she starts talking about worship. She starts talking about what is true worship, where should we worship, what is right worship. And we see Jesus go with her in that conversation. He doesn't get offended by her topic change. He stays with her. He's patient. And he says some of the most profound truths about worship in the scripture. And because of that, even though we touched on it briefly last week, we can't just pass over these verses. (laughs) Verses specifically 23 through 24. So this morning we're going to talk about worship and the importance of worship. That it's one of the most important things that we do and we see Jesus give credence to that in these verses that we're going to read later. But the truth is everyone is a worshiper. Everyone's a worshiper. And it's easy for us to think that in this room, right, we've come here, we've come to worship God, we began with a call to worship, we'll end with a benediction, a blessing. So we've come to worship, but the truth is everyone is a worshiper. Even the atheist down the street that says, I don't believe in God, there's no such thing as God, I've never been to a church service in the day of my life, that person is still a worshiper. We see in places like Romans 1 that they've exchanged the worship of the true God to worship created things. So we also see in the scripture that we are all created to worship, that we're made in God's image, we're made to reflect God's glory, we are made to be worshipers. And for anybody that doesn't believe me, just go to a rock concert, <laughs> right? We were, at a, we were at a concert at the Devon Theater this last week. It was an 80s rock and roll concert. And I bet a lot of people there would probably say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a worshiper, I don't believe in God. But they were doing something at that show on Thursday. They were doing something, right? Rock and roll, right? They were lifting their hands, they were doing something. Or if you've ever seen somebody at a Sunday football game, or that is something. And, it's, and most likely it's worship. The question is... Is it true worship? Is it right worship? What's the object of their worship? Is it rock and roll or is it the true God? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the nature of true worship and the object and seeker of true worship. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll read verses 23 through 24. I'll pray for us and then we'll look at this text. This is Jesus speaking. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths that are in your scripture that John the Apostle has written down. And we see at the end of his gospel that he wrote these things so that we might believe. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And... 
We know why Jesus said these words to the woman at the well. He said these words so that she might have life. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that these words might be life to us. That where we need convicting, we would be convicted. Where we need encouraging, we might be be encouraged. And where we might be built up, you might build us up, Lord. That we might be those that worship in spirit and truth this morning. And that we might see these truths and have eternal life. That we might know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, truly man, truly God. And that by believing in him, by faith alone, we might have eternal life in his name this morning. We pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit, that you would change us and make us new, and that we would not leave here the same way that we came. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So what do you think of when you think of worship? When I say that word, worship. Most people think of worship music, typically, right? Music is the part where we worship music worship music on the radio or a concert of worship music that's what most people think of is it's only the music worship is just the music it's only that but the question i would ask is what are we doing right now are we are we worshiping are you worshiping right now i don't know that's a good question i can't answer that but that's what we've come to do right we've come together to worship god so it's not only the music it's all of life in one sense. We find out in places like First and Second Timothy that all of life is worship, that we should do all to the glory of God, that everything we do with every breath should be in worship and praise of God. So what does it mean to worship? What is worship? These are all important <laughs> questions. And more specifically, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth, Right? Because in one sense, those are kind of vague words, and we can kind of attach our own meanings to those. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth, and why is worship important? Why does Jesus spend so much time in this discussion talking about true worship? So we'll look at three things this morning. First, we'll look at the nature of true worship. The nature of true worship. Secondly, we'll look at the object of true worship. The object of true worship. And finally, we'll look at the seeker of true worship. The seeker of true worship. So, the nature of true worship. Worship is not just found in the New Testament. And it's not just found in the Old Testament, where it talks about temples and sacrifices and priests. Worship is happens very early in the scriptures. And even this distinction between true worship and false worship, and maybe some of you are already thinking in your head, Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, they're both sons of Adam and Eve. And early on in the scriptures, Genesis, we see this idea of true and right worship, that Abel brings an offering before God, And it's accepted. And Cain also brings an offering, but it is not accepted. God does not accept Cain's offering. So right away, we see in the scriptures this distinction between right worship and 
not right worship. Between acceptable worship and worship that is not accepted by God. Between true and false worship. And so, Kendall, this is kind of heavy, <laughs> right? But, but it's in the scriptures and it's true. And if we even look at things like the Ten Commandments. Most people just think of those as good moral teaching. What are the first four commandments? They are about worship, <laughs> right? It's kind of funny that we want to like put them in a school, right? Because most schools don't even talk about God or anything about God. The first four commandments are about worship. <laughs> They're about how to worship God rightly. If you think about what those are in your head, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And you should not dishonor the Sabbath day. And we can tend to think of it in our heads as those are just thou shall not, thou shall not. They're all negative. But all the commandments have a positive element as well. The commandment do not murder doesn't just mean don't kill people and you're good. It also means preserve life. Same thing with the truth. It doesn't mean don't just not lie. It also means preserve the truth. So same way with these first four commandments. We learn in the first commandment about the sanctity of the true God. That there's one true and living God and he's to be worshipped. In the second commandment, we learn about the sanctity of acceptable worship. That we're not to worship idols, but also what does it mean to have true acceptable worship. In the third commandment, we learn about the sanctity of God's name. That his name is holy and to be treated with reverence. And in the fourth commandment, we learn about sanctity of time for God. So all that to say that this idea of worship is throughout the scriptures. It's not just here in John 4. It's not just in the parts of the temple. It's throughout the Bible. It's as old as Cain and Abel, if we want to say it like that. So we see here in John 4 this idea of worship come up because it's a critical topic. It's something that appears throughout the scripture. And specifically in these verses, we see this discussion of the nature of true worship. And if you look with me in verse 23, it says this phrase, the true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. The implication there is that there's false worshipers, <laughs> that there's true and right worship of God and there's <clears throat> false worship of God. Maybe I'm beating that horse, but it's, it's worth saying. And so we can see in the second part of verse 23, this idea of in spirit and in truth. We also see it repeated in verse 24. So what does it mean? What's it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? The sort of common way that people have understood this verse is to say, well, to worship in spirit and in truth means if I have enough passion and energy, that makes it right. And if I really mean what I am doing, then therefore it's true. And what's subtly happening in that answer is that we become the ones that decide what's worshiping in spirit and truth. If somebody really means it, then there's no way it could not be true worship. But we see throughout the scriptures that there are people that have genuine passion and care for the things of God. And yet their worship is not real. It's not accepted. It's not true. It's not in spirit and in truth. And so we have to ask the question, what determines what is acceptable? What is true? What is it to worship in spirit and in truth? And we touched on it a little bit this morning in our confession of faith. Our confession talks about this idea that nature says that there is a God, that he's worthy of our worship, 
but the ways of worshiping God are in his word. The acceptable ways of worshiping God. So what does that mean? We don't get to invent new ways of worshiping God. God tells us how he wants to be worshipped, which is an interesting thought if you take the time to think about it. That God cares so much about worship that he tells us how to be how he wants to be worshipped. It says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. That God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. This is true in the Old Testament. If you've in your Bible reading plan got to the book of Leviticus, you'll see that there's very specific rules about how God wants to be worshipped. <laughs> right? It's so specific that it becomes boring to us sometimes, right? You learn about the sacrifices and how it needs to be prepared and on what day and what parts of the animal are sacrificed and all these things communicate that God cares about how he's to be worshipped. And the same applies in the New Testament as well. Unless we get lost in those specifics in the Old Testament... What we're trying to communicate and what I believe Christ is communicating in John chapter 4 is this idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth is not just external. It's not just doing the things that God says to do. That there's part of what it means to do it in spirit as well is that the heart behind it is right as well. That in the Old Testament, at times the people of God in Israel, they would do all the external things. They would bring their sacrifices before God. They would do all the right things, and yet God would confront them. And he would say, your sacrifices are a burden to me. I I detest them. What? You told us to give these sacrifices. He says, because your hands are full of blood. That their actions were not in accord with these sacrifices they were making. They were almost saying, I can sin over here, I can do everything I want, and if I just do the sacrifice then I'll be right with God. And he says, no, your heart matters. It's not about just dead ceremony, but it is about the intentions of your heart. And so what is being communicated here in this idea of in spirit and in truth is very similar, that the nature of true worship is spiritual. It's not just physical. It's not just going through the motions. It's spiritual. And we get reinforcement of that in verse 24. He says, God is spirit. God is spirit. That's communicating part of the nature of who God is. That he's not physical. He's not, he doesn't have a body as we talked about in the kids catechism this question. God is spirit. He's immaterial. He can't be seen. He's spiritual. And that's in contrast to this physical worship that Jesus had just got done talking with this woman about. She's arguing about which mountain should we worship on? Should we worship over here? Should we worship over there? Maybe the presence of God is you know, more holy here and it's not more holy there. And Jesus is saying, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That true worship is spiritual. Meaning, it's not about just the physical externals that it is a matter of the heart. Paul will later go on in Romans 12 to say, Offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, which is your act of spiritual worship. So the nature of worship is spiritual, to worship in spirit. We also see what does it mean to worship in truth. What is the nature of worshiping in truth? That even though our heart must be right, 
our passion, our affection for God must be right, that if that's pointed in the wrong direction, it's not true worship. It's not true worship. That we must know God rightly before we can worship Him rightly. We must know God rightly before we can worship Him rightly. And me and Emily lived in Utah for several years. And there was a lot of well-meaning Mormons in the state of Utah, right? They were the nicest people you'll ever meet. They were kind. And they would say, I believe in the Bible. They would tell you that. And they say, I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. And yet, their Jesus was very different than the Christian Orthodox Jesus. Their Jesus was the brother of Satan. And Jesus was this person that became God because he lived in obedience to God. And you can become a God one day too if you do what Jesus did. That was their theology. That's a different Jesus than the Orthodox Christian Jesus, right? We talked about this morning. Jesus was truly God. He never stopped being God. He was the one true God. And so when Mormons would tell us, we worship Jesus too. Their affection is right. They're, you know, they want to have this passion for God, but it's to a different Jesus. It's a Jesus that they've created in their head. And so what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? It means to worship with our affections, yes, with spirit, with our spirit, by the power of the spirit. But it also means to worship in truth, to worship God as he has revealed himself in the word. So this is the nature of true worship. So next we'll look at the object of true worship. And we've touched on this a little bit, so I won't berate the point, but the object of true worship. That, as I said at the beginning, we're all worshipers. We are all worshipers. Everyone in the world is a worshiper. And as we read in our, as we saw in Psalm 115, not only are we all worshipers, but we become like what we worship. That's what Psalm 115 says. It says, those who make these idols become like them. They have ears but don't hear. They have eyes but don't see. Um, There's a book back there on the table, or used to be back there. There's a quote from um, this book called What Happens When We Worship. The author says this. We will be changed and transformed and shaped into whatever it is we find to be the utmost importance in our lives. What are our ultimate desires? Fame, sex and pleasure, family, health, money, entertainment, the perfect home, our worldly comforts. If we worship it, will we, we will become like it. If we worship it, we will become like it. That's what the psalmist is saying. There's this fascinating passage in Isaiah 44 where Isaiah is confronting the Israelites for this, their idolatry. And he would say, you'd cut down a tree and you would use half of it to make your God, right? You'd carve this God out of wood and you'd worship this God. And with the other half, you would use it for fire. He's like, that's your God? <laughs> half of it you use to worship and half of it you use for fire? That's your God is a piece of wood that has eyes but can't see. That is what it's like in our idolatry. And we don't think about it like that a lot, right? But what does Paul say in Romans 1? We've exchanged the worship of the true God, the creator, 
for his creation. We worship other things. And it's usually not, in our day and age, a wooden statue. It's other things. It's all these other things in our lives. Family, comfort, sex, pleasure, fame. Whatever it is, we worship it and it affects us. It changes us and we become like it. That becomes our God. So the object of true worship shouldn't be idols. It shouldn't be our own created things. It should be God alone. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you have noticed that we try to emphasize this throughout the worship service. So if you look at the prayer of confession, every week we pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That we're trying to reinforce this idea that God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That should be the object of our worship. Not created things, not ourselves, but God alone. And I like what our confession will later go on to say, that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God. What does that mean? That took me a while to figure out what that means. To say it negatively, without the, tri- the triune God, we have no communion with God. <laughs> That this is an important thing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And not only for our prayers, but for our salvation, for our redemption. That the Father has sent the Son. The Son has accomplished redemption. The Spirit applies redemption to God's people. This is why God is worthy of our worship. I love this quote also from this book called uh, Reformation Worship. It answers this question, what is worship? Worship is the right-fitting and delightful response to God, the Creator, Redeemer, and Consummator. For who He is, as the one true God, for what He has done in creation and redemption, and for what He will do in the coming consummation. God is to be worshipped. That is the object of our worship. Not created things, not idols, but God alone. And that's what we see in our text. It says, God the Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him. (laughs) Not other things, not created things, but God alone. That is the object of our worship. So we've looked at the nature of true worship. We looked at the object of our worship. And now we're going to look at the seeker of true worship. The seeker of true worship. So we've seen that we're created in God's image. We're all worshipers. We can't help it. (laughs) We go to a concert. People that say, I don't believe in God, they still worship. Everything we do with our actions, our affections, communicates worship and worth to those things. So we are worshipers. We are made in God's image. We're supposed to reflect God's glory and God's worth and value, creation itself, the trees. When you look out at the trees, you're supposed to say, God is worthy of worship. God created those things. He's a good God. He's given me life and breath. He's to be worshipped. Scripture tells us the nature of true worship, and yet we don't do it. (laughs) And yet we don't do it. As Daryl pointed out this morning in Romans 3, none of us is righteous. No, not one. And it says there in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. So we're creating God's image. We're supposed to worship God. And 
because of the sin, because of the fall, because of sin, no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. None is righteous. No, not one. But what does it say in John chapter 4? It's the same root Greek word. The Father is seeking. The Father is seeking. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What does it say in the Gospel of Luke? That Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. That God is seeking. That the Father is seeking. He sent His Son to seek. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, what's it say? But God, you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, saved us by His grace. That God is the one seeking. That He is the good shepherd that seeks after His sheep. He leaves the 99 to find the one. And not only that, He lays down His life for the sheep. And that's what Christ would come to do. That's why he could say these words to the woman at the well. He would say, come to me. Come to the living water. I'm the shepherd that's going to lay down my life for you, the sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he rose again. That's why he poured out his spirit to seek and save that which was lost. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the true seekers of true worshipers. They, God himself, will seek us and find us and change us. So that's John 4, 23 through 24. So before we, before we leave, a couple of things to think about and leave us with and contemplate as we leave. The first thing, this is, should be evident from our scripture, but... Worship is important to God. Worship is important to God. It's important to God. Why? He is the only one worthy of worship. He created us. He made us. He gave us bodies. He gave us souls and consciences. He, he created us. He's the only one worthy of praise, glory, and majesty. And not only did He create us, but He is our Redeemer. He's the one that saved us. So, we shouldn't just worship him for creating us, but for saving us. That we were the ones that rejected him, and yet he sought after us and saved us. And this needs to be done not only in spirit, but in truth. That we need to know God rightly. That doctrine matters. What we believe about God matters. What we believe, as R.C. Sproul would say, everyone is a theologian. <laughs> Everyone's a theologian. Everyone believes things about God. The question is, are those good things or wrong things? So we must worship God rightly. And that's part of what we try to do here at Covenant with this liturgy is we try to do the things that God's commanded us, right? We try to confess our sins as Scripture commands. We try to be assured of God's pardon. We pray. We sing. We preach the Word. We take the Lord's Supper. We do all these things. Why? Because it's how God has told us he wants to be worshipped. So we need to worship in, in truth, but we also must worship in spirit. And I think that applies to us even more than maybe other churches, other denominations, that we must worship sincerely. We must worship with our whole hearts, that we cannot succumb to dead ceremonialism. We can't just go through the motions. We can't just come and think we've checked off the list and done what's right. But God wants 
to change us. He wants our hearts to be affected. In Isaiah 1, as it says, these, these sacrifices I don't delight in. In Psalm 51, it says, I don't delight in these sacrifices. What does God delight in? A broken and contrite spirit. A broken and contrite spirit. That is what we should have before God when we come to worship Him. Not one that's proud, not one that says, I know it all, I have it all together. It's actually the opposite. (laughs) It's one that's broken and contrite before God. So worship is important to God. And secondly, worship is important for us. It's important for us. And as one author said, it's the most important thing that we'll ever do. Which is pretty important. (laughs) The most important thing we'll ever do. Have you thought about worship like that? It's the most important thing that we'll ever do. That we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we're to worship Him with all our might, with all our soul, with all our strength. And the truth is we fail at this, right? I fail at this. (laughs) To be honest... We all fail at this. It's so easy to sit in there and sing the song and you know the words and it's just become routine. And it doesn't have an effect. The truths that we're singing, they don't have an effect on us. Or maybe, maybe it's not the singing, maybe it's how we treat our neighbor. Maybe it's how we treat others in our lives. It's so easy to just go through the motions. To not be affected by these things. But the truth is, That worship is important. And as one author said, if we don't get the first four commandments right, we won't get the the second six right. Does that make any sense? Or to say it how Jesus said it, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can't do the second, you can't love your neighbor as you love yourself unless you're loving God. It's impossible. It's impossible. So may this morning, may we seek to love God first and foremost, not only in our own private with how we worship God, reading the scripture, praying, not only in our families to worship God, but to come together every week and to worship him together publicly in worship. As the author of Hebrews says, we're not to neglect the gathering of together. Why? Because... God's commanded us to do it, but also because it changes us. When I hear you sing, when I hear everyone pray, it encourages me. It affects me, and I don't want to continue in my sin. I don't want to let Daryl down. I don't want to let Andrew down. I don't want to let you all down. (laughs) And that's not the ultimate reason that we don't sin or anything like that. But when we come together, we're reminded that we're a body, that we're there to build one another up, to bear one another's burdens. And especially during this time... It's a great reminder. So this morning, as many things are around us, Satan, sin, the flesh, they all try to attack us. They try to bring us down. They try to tell us that that the church isn't important, that bitterness is okay, that Satan wants to divide his church to, to destroy us. But we're reminded in the book of Hebrews that we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That cannot be shaken. We know that Christ will pursue his sheep. His church will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
and it cannot be shaken. So let's have that hope and confidence this morning as we continue to worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these passages of Scripture where we learn about what is true worship, Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, too frequently we have not given you true worship. We've given worship that's half-hearted, that's hypocritical, that's insincere, or that's misguided and not informed. This morning, would we worship you in spirit and in truth? Would we know you rightly and be changed by that? May we not just be those that know all the right answers, but it has no effect on us, Lord. May we see the true and living God this morning and leave this place differently than when we came because of worship, Lord, because of worship and because of your spirit. Help us this morning to trust in you. Give us strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We come now to the time of our service where we come to the Lord's Supper. This means of grace that God has given us. Another thing that he's commanded us to do as an act of worship. That we don't just come up here. And this might be the most tempting for us to this dead ceremony, right? Where we just do the thing that we do every week and we go back to our table and we eat. It's so tempting. <laughs> but we're to do it, why? To be changed, to be encouraged, to be reminded, <laughs> to look forward, to say Christ took the punishment that we deserve. He was the one that always worshiped God rightly. Where we fail, where we fail in our worship, Jesus never failed. He worshiped the Father perfectly. He never failed. And not only that, not only is he a good example, but he's the one that did it for us so that his righteousness might be credited to our account. And he took the curse that we deserve, the curse of wrong worship, the curse of idolatry. Our sin he took on the cross and was broken so that our sin might be forgiven, our iniquity covered. And so we come this morning, yes, we come confessing our sin. We come bringing our sin, and hopefully we come as the people that are most willing to talk about our sin. <laughs> the, the people that are first to say, I don't have it all together. I fall short every day, but Jesus did not. Jesus Christ did not. He is the Lord. He is the one mediator between God and man. And so we come confessing, but we also come rejoicing. We come praising God that he sent a Savior, that he sent his only Son, the only begotten, so that we might be spared, that our sin might be covered, his blood might wash and cleanse us, that our robes that were filthy might be made white as snow. So this morning, come partake of the elements. We'll come and do that together. So grab the elements, go sit down, and we'll partake together. There's wine up there and also grape juice for anybody that wants that option. So come as you're able.
week, we take the bread and we're reminded that it's a means of grace. It's a way that God brings grace to our souls. Us who are sinful and weary, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So may we take this bread this morning and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. In the same way, we take the cup of wine and we are reminded that Christ's living blood was spilled so that our sins might be forgiven. So we take the cup, we remember, and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins.
now to the time of our service where we, in another act of worship, offer our finances, our money, our the resources that God has given us, we offer them back to Him. Not as a means to earn God's favor, not because God needs it, but because He's called it, called us to do this as a means of really killing idolatry in our life. As a means of saying money doesn't matter, everything we have is from God, and so we give a portion of what God has given us back to Him, not to earn anything from Him, but because of what He's done and out of gratitude for what He has done. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank You for all that You've given us, that even through suffering, through trials and tribulations, we are reminded of all the things that you've given us. And we, this morning, give a portion of what you've given us back to you. Not begrudgingly, not because we have to, but out of joy. Because of all the things that you've graciously given us. That because of he who was rich became poor for our sake. So that we who are poor might be made rich. In spiritual blessings, Lord, you've given us so much. May we give a portion back to you this morning so that your gospel might go to the nations and for the benefit and growth of your kingdom. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Please join with me in hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise God. to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The grace and peace of our Lord as you go from here. Just a quick reminder, next week, we'll, sorry, quick reminder, next week, Bruce Hollister will be here to guest preach, so make sure you're here for that. And then after that, after worship next Sunday, we'll have a fellowship lunch. The church will provide everything, so don't worry about bringing anything. So hopefully you can make that happen.